Hello and welcome to the Green Canary. This week on the show, we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of rain-related things because there's been so much of that on the East Coast. We'll be talking about dams. We'll be talking about what exactly was behind this week's floods. We're going to chat about yet another IPCC report with some not-so-good news there and plenty more. But what's good news is that I'm Ant Sharwood and I'm sitting, well, I don't know if that's good news, but I'm sitting opposite Elfie Scott and that's always good news. It is good news to have you back in the studio. And last week you were all COVID isolated and you're looking healthy and glowing today. That's very kind, Elfie. Very, very kind. Now, unfortunately, (laughs) the weather has not been exactly glowing. I can't remember what the sun looks like. We've had a lot of rain. And then what are we going to talk about there? Right. So we are going to start out this episode by speaking about the floods that we have seen on the East Coast this week in southeastern Queensland and northern New South Wales. So we want to start by acknowledging that the damage that has been caused to the communities in this area, particularly in Lismore, has been absolutely horrific to see. I think you'll agree. And, you know, at least 16 people have lost their lives across both states. And the cleanup job that these towns have been left with is just almost beyond comprehension. It it is. And and I don't know if we're quite in Hurricane Katrina territory yet which of course was was the the disaster in the USA where, mm. where the people felt abandoned by their own government uh, so I don't want to blame the state or the feds but suffice to say seems like we've all seen a lot of footage of locals doing it themselves yeah. cleaning up themselves uh, doing everything themselves so it's been a terrible terrible situation and I guess what we need to speak about now with respect to all those people is what's going on? What's going on with the weather? Mm -hmm. Why are we having what are often described as one in a thousand or one in a hundred year flood events every second year, it seems. Yeah, it seems like that's a bit of a defunct statement to make about a flood right now. It is. And, you know, people need to understand that is just a statistical measure. That is is a a thing that's in in uh, planning documents mm. it's just a, a scheme by which we assess the likelihood of that and a lot of these documents are sort of almost etched in stone they haven't been updated for the last 10 years so so it is technically a one in 100 year event if you're looking at the thing in front of you but as we know they're happening far far more often than that and that brings us to the subject of this conversation what's causing the floods unquestionably the poor prints of climate change are all over them. Now, I wrote a really even-handed, measured, sober piece, I thought, mm-hmm. um, for, for the weather site Weather Zone this week, where I interviewed meteorologists and we identified four types of weather that are behind these floods. So let's be really clear. Let's let's invoke the Dorothea McKellar defence that, that the Conservatives and others uh, always invoke. And McKellar, of course, wrote My Country, the poem with I love a sunburnt country, da 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 da, of droughts and flooding rains. Mm. So they say it's there, it's there. It's in always our, been here. It's always been. Yeah, it's there right. in our national storytelling. And it is, of course it is. We have always had droughts and flooding rains, but they're getting worse. They are absolutely getting worse. So look, there were four types of weather. There were, there were a bunch of troughs. There was a cool upper air disturbance, the, the, the weather systems were slow, and we had the La Nina underlying influence. So we sort of had four pieces of weather combining to make this an extreme severe weather event. But quite simply, uh, climate change, as the atmosphere and the oceans warm, uh, fill both of those things, uh, fill the atmosphere with, with more moisture. It makes events like this Firstly, more likely to happen mm-hmm. in an extreme way, 
and secondly, more extreme when they do happen. It is unquestionable that climate change fueled this event. Now, I, I think you, you spoke to someone at the Climate Council, didn't, didn't you, and, and came up with a version of that thesis as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I spoke to a researcher at the Climate Council earlier this week, and we were talking about the floods and, this, as you say, the confluence of weather events that led to it. But... You know, I think a point that I made to him was that whenever I've spoken to scientists in the past about these sort of events, there's been a certain amount of hesitancy from researchers to point to any one event and say definitively, this was caused by climate change. And I guess I understand that to some extent because, you know, science takes a long time and it can be difficult to try and pinpoint those things. But I think that sort of reticence has shifted in the past couple of years and Now more than ever, climate scientists are willing to look at these events and say, you know, maybe there are several factors involved, but what we are seeing here is something that is absolutely undeniably through the framework of climate change. And this is being caused, at least in part, by global warming. That's right. At least in part is is a really nice way to say that. But having having written what I, as I said, was a thought was a reasonably measured piece, you know, if I was to reduce that to a yes or a no, is climate change the culprit here? Yes, because mm-hmm. I believe if even if we'd still have had this event, we wouldn't have had so many like it with such severity in recent times. End of story. Yeah, totally. Okay, so now moving on to another rain-related story. Mm. This is one that you brought across my table earlier this week that I actually just hadn't read about before, Mm. and I know very little about it still, Mm. to be honest. I've read a couple of news reports, but what are you going to do? Basically, we are talking about the Warragamba Dam here, and we're talking about the argument to raise the wall uh, I, I feel like it should be like hashtag raise the wall at this point. Like I don't, <laughs> I, I would like you, Ant, to sort of maybe draw this up for our listeners. Tell us the the two sides that are opposing here. Who's against it? Who's for it? What do we know about this? Okay, the Warragamba Dam is Sydney's largest re- water storage. Um, <clears throat> for those of us who, those of you who are listening to us from Melbourne, it's the same as your Thompson Dam. Uh, it's like the Wivenhoe in Brisbane. It's easily. Sydney's largest uh, water storage. I can't believe you can just name dams off the top of your head. I think I've walked the entire catchment of the Thompson Dam in, um, <laughs> in the, the ranges uh, northeast of, of Melbourne there. But, but um, you know, um, Warragamba is, they say, not high enough. Um, below Warragamba Dam, uh, it, it flows into the Hawkesbury Nepean and something like 60,000 flood prone residents live there in mm. western parts of Sydney. Now, when, the, when, the, when the, the dam spills, there is always the call to raise a dam. Usually that call comes from Stuart Ayres. He's a New South Wales government, state government minister. He's uh, the minister for Western Sydney. Mm-hmm. His electorate is out there. And it's very, very popular to be able to tell local residents that uh, we're not going to uh, flood your land anymore. We're going to do what we can to save you. Here's the problem. When you raise a dam wall... Bear in mind that the river that flows through Warragamba Dam is just one river in a vast catchment. So sure. it, it accounts for considerably less than half the water. That's You can have a major flood in the Hawkesbury Nepean without a single drop coming over Warragamba Dam. Oh, that's interesting. A lot of other okay. rivers flowing into it. Uh, secondly, you could make that dam wall 100 metres high, 1,000 metres high, um, and you would. Th- there are still some homes going to be in, inundated mm. uh, in any flood. Um, so you're reducing the number from something six, like 60,000 to 10,000. It's significant. But 
It is, look, long story short, Elfie, it's not the be-all and end-all solution. Got it. The, and also, thir- third thing, there's a thing called the levee paradox. It happens around the world. When you build a dam wall higher or a flood levee, you tend to get more development in the flood-prone areas because people get a false sense of security. There are plans afoot to develop more in these areas. So so it, it seems sensible to maybe uh, put a pause on those plans. But the, to me, one of the most important things is that when you raise a dam wall, you inundate a much larger area behind the dam. Mm-hmm. Now, I spoke this week to Harry Burkett. Harry uh, works for the Kolong Foundation for Wilderness. They're a Blue Mountains-based organisation. Um, and he also is a spokesperson for Give a Dam. That's a G-I-V-E-A-D-A-M. And Give a Dam is vehemently opposed to raising the Warragamba Wall. Had a chat to Harry, and here's what he told me about why that's a bad idea from an environmental perspective. The reality is uh, we have UNESCO World Heritage Com- Committee, the advisors to the World Heritage Committee, already saying that this project is actually in contravention to the World Heritage uh, Convention that we signed up to uh, in the 1970s, this project would mean potential uh, endanger listing of the Blue Mountains. Uh, there are a whole suite of threatened species, um, plant and animal, that live uh, upstream in the impact area from raising Warragamba Dam Wall. Um, not to mention the Indigenous sites that exist up there. Uh, the fact is, this place uh, is world heritage for a reason. Uh, and we can't just go about unilaterally destroying it. It's there to be preserved for the whole of humanity. Uh, it's not there to be preserved at the whim of a minister who uh, has <laughs> interest uh, in downstream floodplain development. Uh, that is, I don't necessarily mean pecuniary interest, but does have you know interest in expanding the urban footprint in the uh, floodplain downstream. So that was Harry Burkett from Give a Dam and, you know, putting, putting the case forward not to, not to build the, the dam for environment reasons. Um, there's a pretty dirty fight going on in New South Wales at the moment. Uh, Deputy Premier Paul Toole said, stop coming up with excuses and not allowing these dams to be built or raised where they need to be. Um, Kate Fearman of the Greens in New South Wales says, how dare the Deputy Premier use the death and destruction caused by these floods to guilt trip the public into supporting the National Party's pet project of new dams. Oof, those are fighting words. It's, it's a good stoush. And dams dams are a really interesting issue. Um, to to the Nats, they're a bit of a be-all and end-all. Uh, build dams, solve problems. Right. Uh, is, is that it, their, like, national logo? Yeah, their pretty, motto, sorry. Pretty, pretty much. Um, <laughs> but it's never that simple. And you just knew this issue was going to come up when we had floods in the Sydney Basin. Uh, it'll come up next time we have them. But... Um, Generally speaking, better flood mitigation strategies with things like better evacuation. People live on a floodplain. Uh, that's a shame uh, for a lot of people, but it's a fact of life as well. Raising the wall will never get rid of all floods. Uh, there's a lot of people that need to be evacuated more efficiently. There are things that government can do beyond sp- spending a lot of money on an environmentally damaging wall. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, so let's move on to the next story, which is... Another IPCC report. (laughs) Good Lord. Okay, so the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, I believe off the top of my head. Yeah, I did it. Um, They released uh, their second part of the six 
assessment report this week. So basically, these assessment reports are broken down into three parts. The first part being a report that looks at what the climate is actually doing and where it's projected to be going. Uh, That report was released at the end of last year, if you remember. Um, And this part of the report looks at the human impacts and the ways that our lives will be affected. Um, Too long didn't read segment of this. It's terrible obviously. Um, It's another alarm bell. Antonio Guterres, head of the UN, said that the report read like an atlas of human (laughs) suffering, which is just He's been very poetic lately. We've talked about that in our newsletter. We spoke about it briefly um, with regards to plastics last week as well. Uh, So good on Antonio for firing up and not speaking like a bureaucrat. Um, I think, Elfie, long story short, is that this this, report Part two of this major report came at the wrong time. I think the world's got a bit of report fatigue. It mm-hmm. came during Ukraine, um, the week that Russia declared war on Ukraine. Ukraine and floods. Ukraine and floods. It's been um, so much. Then we had Shane Warne dying, which was a huge news story in Australia. And there's just too much going on for people to process yet another bad news report. But there is bad news in there. Um, the, you know, the world faces, according to the report, unavoidable multiple climate hazards over the next two decades with global warming of 1.5 C, which we still haven't quite hit, which Paris tried to stop us from hitting. Maybe we won't hit it. Who knows? Maybe a miracle will happen. Oh, God. Look, every time these reports are published, it just it just feels like a knife through my chest now these days, honestly. All right. Well, let's, oh. let's talk about something that's almost good. Let's go into mulch. Let's talk about the little things, just bits and pieces. And uh, as mentioned, we did speak last week about the Plastics Treaty. Yes, this is good news. Well, it's almost good news. I mean, you It's know, on the way to being good news. No, we're never going to sit in the corner and make a treaty in New Butte. Now we've got a treaty, but we do need a treaty on plastics. We're pouring $10 million. Uh, no, we're not. 10 million tonnes. 10 million tonnes be nice if we were pouring $10 million to stop plastic. <laughs> 10 million tonnes of plastic waste into the world's oceans each year. And you and I had a chat before the pod about uh, how do we know how much 10 million tonnes is? We frantically Googled the weight of an elephant. <laughs> uh, Which is six tonnes. Yeah, a big one. A uh, big African elephant. Uh, <laughs> more likely like a small car. Small cars just over a tonne. So if you can think of 10 million tonnes uh, sorry, 10 million cars. Like citrons, like 10 million citrons being oh. poured into the ocean, you know what I mean? I could listen to you say citron all day. <laughs> but just the, that O and E, subtly, subtly uh, removed <laughs> from each other, yet still said together. Um, all right, so so that's the, the, the first thing on our list. Uh, Plastics Treaty, not here yet. But Steps were taken. It will be. Steps were taken. Well, now, what, what else is going on? What, what's, what's the latest with uh, MCB and AGL? <laughs> God, that's too many acronyms for the human brain. All right, so AGL has rejected another takeover bid from MCB, Mike Cannon-Brooks, and Brookfield. So the pair made a new offer this week of $8.25 a share, which if you remember from all of our coverage on this, because we've been talking about this a hell of a lot, which is up from the $7.50 they initially came to the table with. But the board of AGL met again and they have rejected it again. So Mike Cannon-Brooks announced on Twitter that the consortium was putting their pens down and walking away, which 
it sucks. And it was really exciting for a moment and now it seems the dream has fully died. Don't know. It still feels like shots across the bow to me. Uh, I have a feeling this could be like a John Farnham tour. It might be the last instalment until the next last instalment. So <laughs> look, fingers <laughs> crossed. That'd be nice. That was a bit of a bit of a boomer reference there. But <laughs> but but anyway, look, move on. Um Victoria has set an offshore wind target. This is amazing. This is terrific. It often stuns people to learn that there are no offshore wind turbines in Australian waters. Oh, we've only got the biggest island in the world, the biggest windiest island in the world, <laughs> and we haven't thought to stick any uh, wind turbines offshore for numerous reasons. Perhaps not accurate to say we haven't thought, but we haven't got around to it yet. Victoria's going to get around to it. They have set a target of nine gigawatts by 2040. Now, speaking of elephants and 10 million tonnes of plastic into the sea, how much is nine gigawatts, Elfie? Okay, so... I Googled this before because whenever I come across the word gigawatt, I have no context context for that whatsoever. So I looked it up. A gigawatt is a thousand megawatts. And to put this into some perspective, AGL's Loyang power station currently generates 2,000 megawatts every year. So, so hang on. They're going to build four and a half times the capacity of their largest coal-fired power station yeah. in offshore wind turbines. Isn't that wild? Okay, so it won't get to that uh, that much capacity until um, 2040, I believe. Um, but, you know, they will be building on this and they do expect that by 2028, the first offshore wind energy will be produced in Victoria. Bring it on. That is absolutely terrific news and can't come quick enough. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So let's wrap this up. That is all we have time for today. Before we head off, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, as well as extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. Very well said, Elfie. And I would like to say hello to all our new followers on Twitter. We have another new hundred or so followers this week. Oh, do we? So all listening, to the, listening to the pod. Yeah, good on them. So g'day to you all. And uh, please keep chatting to us on Twitter like we've been doing this week. Talk to us on uh, Instagram at Green Canary Media. That Twitter handle, by the way, was at Green Canary Pod. And I'm told by our social media in-house expert, that would be you, Elfie. That is me. Yeah, it's literally just me. Yeah, that if (laughs) you are on your phone, you should take a screenshot listening to us. Is that what you should do? You should go, hey, I'm listening to the Green Canary Pod. Yeah, it's the best way to get our name out there if you're enjoying what we're putting down. So take a screenshot, tag us and post it on Twitter or Instagram so we know you're out there. Do everything that Elfie says all the time. That is my life motto because he's a lot smarter than me. And on that note, we'll see you next week. It's very kind, Dan. Bye! Bye!